And now, 40-some years later and thousands of clients later and thousands of therapists like yourself using this all over the world, you can safely say that that self with a capital S is in everybody, is a kind of essence that can't be destroyed and knows how to heal and knows how to relate to your parts in a healing way and knows how to relate to the people around you in a healing way. That's a big deal. That changes everything. Five years ago, I was sick, sicker than I'd ever been in my life. I had pneumonia and I couldn't really do anything other than prop myself on the couch and breathe, at least fight to breathe, and think about how I ended up in this mess. Sure, after priding myself on never getting sick, (laughs) I had caught a bug and I was dealing with the consequences, but I was also dealing with something else. I'd run myself to the ground. My schedule was full to overflowing. My life was packed and stretched to the edges. I had no margin for error, no space to breathe, no time to connect to who and what mattered to me. My body was trying to tell me something. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. Five years ago, my body was trying to tell me to take a step back and reevaluate. What was I really chasing? (laughs) Why had I packed my life so full? What was really driving me to try to be all the things to all the people? Sick on the couch, I started to wrestle with how I ended up in this position. It wasn't just my vision and mission driving me. They were still there but were buried, buried beneath a lot of hurt and wounds from the traumas of betrayal, abuse, and shame that I was trying to run from. It was humbling and frustrating to see these recurring struggles and how they were hijacking my drive. Ugh, this is so hard to say, but the constant search to prove myself worthy, it just sucked seeing that there was more work to do on what I thought I'd resolved. And I knew sitting on that couch fighting to breathe that I needed to do more work to lift those burdens so I could move forward and move forward in a way where my drive was aligned to what matters most to me instead of taking me farther away from these anchors. That realization ushered me in a season of powerful life shifts. I worked on reprioritizing my family, my core values, my original vision for my business, and my passion for play and creativity. Finally, I found my footing to lead again. In the last episode, Jonathan Merritt and I talked about how sometimes our bodies give us an SOS, whether we like it or not. (laughs) That SOS is an opportunity to take stock and make changes so we can get back to the work of leading. In today's episode, I want to challenge the common narrative about our drive as leaders. I want to dig into how we change, how we overcome overwhelm, and why resistance, or what I call protection, always creeps in. What often sets apart leaders is drive. I'm hard-pressed to find a leader, a business owner, an entrepreneur who is not driven. This drive goes deep. You get it. You live this every day. But what if your ceaseless drive to push through resistance is actually keeping you from realizing your true potential for leadership? I learned I needed to take a step back, check myself, and get clear on what the protectors of the resistance were trying to tell me. My own drive is fueled by many things, a cocktail of passion, pain, and possibility. 
And I see that same mix in the leaders I work with every day. So how do we start to check ourselves? How do we get curious about what's driving us and why our resistance is showing up in the first place? How do we know if we're already succumbing to the consequences of unchecked drive? I can think of no one better to have this conversation with than Dr. Richard Schwartz. Dick created internal family systems as a systemic family therapist and academic. This framework has been instrumental in my own work as a therapist and coach for leaders, but also as a wife, a mom, and just a human. It's been instrumental for everything. But the story of his own personal journey showcases just as many insights as his body of work. Dick shares how his understanding of self-leadership saved his life in a near-death experience in Hawaii. He also shares what led him to course correct on his early teaching on healing and why he feels like his methodology is a powerful support in an age of gaslighting culture and really for any leader. Pay close attention to how Dick points out that unchecked drive can hijack other parts of you, your playfulness, your ability to rest, and your ability to handle what comes up when you finally take a break. And now I am thrilled to share this conversation with an incredible leader and one of the most generous leaders I have ever met. Dick, it is such an honor and a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Always great to talk to you, Rebecca. Well, thank you. I I have to say that your work inspired this podcast. The the title, the whole the whole mission and vision behind the Burden Leader is based on your work uh, and the founding of Internal Family Systems. So thank you for that inspiration. Very honored to hear that. I'm really glad you're in the community. I'm glad to have you spreading the word. Well, it's a uh, pure joy. So there's so much that I want to address today, but I want to bring you back to a time. You shared a story when I was at a training with you that so impacted me. And I've continued to share that on your behalf with mm-hmm. so many that I work with because it was so powerful. And I'm wondering if you can share with our listeners about the time that you almost drowned while you were swimming in Hawaii. Uh, yeah. So this was, I think, three years ago, maybe two and a half, three years ago. I was visiting my brother who has a place on Kauai on a bay there. And uh, it was a, a day of very heavy surf. and decided to go to the beach and uh, thought it would be safe to just wade in the shallows. And then I took another step and it was like a drop-off or something. And all of a sudden I was being pulled out to sea by what they call a riptide. Not having spent a lot of time at oceans, I didn't know what to do other than to swim, try and swim back. And so I did that for a while, futilely getting more and more tired. I'm not a great swimmer, and I'm pretty old. And (laughs) so I would try and roll over on my back to catch my breath, but the waves were so big, the water would just come in my mouth. So it got to a point where I really thought I was going to die, and I had these parts screaming in my head, we're going to die, we're going to die, I'm going to die. And... You know, I have a relationship with my parts to the point where I could say to them, you know, I couldn't say we're not going to die, because I, I thought we probably would too. But I could say to them, I'll be with you, and I love you. And, and they calmed down. And not long after that, 
my sister-in-law happened to come down to the beach and saw what was happening and frantically motioned me to swim parallel to the shore rather than try and swim back. And I had just enough energy. It was, it was counterintuitive because there were such big waves. Why would you swim that way? But I had enough energy to do that, and then the waves kind of carried me in. So, yeah, anyway, that's the story. The reason I'm here able to talk to you today is that my sister-in-law came down at the, just in the nick of time. But there's this point to, in that story, I can even just feel the tenderness hearing you tell it again in me, where your system, you know, you were hearing just, we're going to, we're going to die. And that connection you had with those parts of you that were so scared, it wasn't a false truth of, you know, we're going to be fine. Mm -hmm. It was, well, no matter what happens, I'm with you. And there was this sense of relaxing. So you even had your wherewithal to notice your sister-in-law, at least that's what I make up. Mm -hmm. And that relaxing allowed you to kind of stay in your executive functioning mm-hmm. <laughs> stay and be able to to get back into shore. How does that experience illustrate your approach to self-leadership? Well, part of why I tell that story is that there isn't ever a time when you can't access the, what I call the self, even when you're about to die. And that that's even then, not only do you feel better and calmer, but you get a lot of points from your parts. So one of the big goals of this work is for your parts to trust you more as a leader inside. And if you can step up, even in a time like that, then everybody says, oh, this guy, maybe we can trust him. That's powerful. And you talk about the self and you talk about the parts. Can you just briefly address this model, this internal family systems model, this framework that you've developed? Yeah, so, um, you know, I'll go back in time maybe almost 40 years now. I was <laughs> just a little kid, and uh, I was trained as a family therapist. I have a PhD in that, and I thought family therapy was found the Holy Grail. I held that belief until I tested it and actually did an outcome study with bulimia and found that I could reorganize the families just the way the book said to do it. And still, some of my clients kept binging and purging. So I, out of frustration, started asking why. And they started talking this language of parts. And they would say some version of something bad happens and this critic attacks me for it. And that brings up another part that makes me feel totally worthless and alone and empty. And that's so distressing that to the rescue comes the binge it takes me out of my body, but then the critic attacks me for the binge, which brings back that worthless, empty, lonely one. So the binge has to come back, and they'd be caught in that vicious cycle. And family therapy is the field in psychology that's steeped in systems thinking. Mm-hmm. And so what I was hearing as a systems thinker was the natural sequence of interactions in a system. And so I began trying to look at what my clients were saying through that lens and then actually trying to intervene using some family therapy technology. And longer story short, as I was doing that and and trying as a family therapist to have these sort of internal family sessions where I would have my client talk to the critic and try and get it to change. And as I did that, would come to find that the critic wasn't just a bundle of, of parent parental energy that 
a lot of the field has thought it was, and that it actually, when I really listened and got my client to listen, was really trying to keep my client safe by pushing her to look better or to perform better perfectly, or was trying to run down her confidence so she wouldn't take any risk. And as I had clients listen to and get to know other parts, it turned out that none of them were the way they seemed, that they were all, uh, even these parts that were causing lots of symptoms or screwing up their lives in various ways, when you really listened from a mindful place, you know, with an open mind and open heart, they would tell the secret history of how they were forced into these protective roles and how most, most of them were frozen in time in the past when that, when that role was necessary often. But they're still living as if you were still five years old. They still believe you're five years old. And they still have to yell at you in the case of the critics, or they, they still have to make you feel better through the binge, or so on and so on. And at some point, I started to think, wow, maybe these parts aren't what they seem. Maybe they are like kids in a family. So family therapy's big big insight was you can't take an acting out kid out of their family and tell them to stop and expect that expect that to work. You instead have to get to know what kind of sequences of interaction the kid is caught up in in his family that are maintaining his acting out or causing him to. And then change that. And when you change that, the kid reverts to his natural self and stops acting out. So I thought maybe the same thing's true with these inner parts. Maybe they are good parts who are caught up in forces inside that are making them extreme this way. And it turns out that that's true. So a couple of basic ideas of this model. One is that having parts isn't a sign of pathology, that mm-hmm. it's the nature of the mind to be subdivided that way, that we're born with them, is the idea. In addition, there aren't any bad ones. They're all valuable. They all carry resources and uh, abilities that we need, but that they get forced out of their naturally valuable states by the traumas we experience, or the, it's called attachment injuries in our childhood, into roles that they're stuck in, and they think are still necessary to keep you safe and can be quite destructive. But again, it's not who they are. So that was amazing to me because it contradicted so many things I'd learned in psychology. And even more contradictory and even more amazing, as I was doing that work and I was having clients have these dialogues, and as a family therapist, if you're working in a family and you try to get two people to talk to each other and it doesn't go well, it's often because there's a third person who's interfering. So when I started working with clients and maybe had one of these bulimic kids trying to talk to her critical mother, and she'd get angry at the mother, and you look around and you see the father was cueing her that he disagreed with the mother too. So we learned as family therapist to get him to step out of her line of vision in the room, and she'd calm down and, and do okay. So I brought that awareness to when I was trying to have maybe that same kid talk to this critical voice inside of her. 
And as I'm trying to help her get to know it rather than fight it, suddenly she's furious with that critic. And so I said, is there another part of you that hates the critic that's, that's interfering? And clients would say, yes. Could it, we ask it to step back or relax or just give us some space so we can get to know this critic? And they'd say, okay, it did. I'd say, now how do you feel toward the critic? And they'd say, I'm just kind of curious about why it's calling me name. Seconds earlier, they hated it or they were terrified of it. But you get those parts to separate. And suddenly it was like this other person shows up who knew how to relate to the critic in a way that it would respond well to and would exhibit qualities like curiosity or calm or we have what we call the eight C's of self-leadership. So uh, oddly enough, as I, as I saw that person show up in other clients, simply by getting these other parts to open space, it was like the same person would show up, started to catalog the qualities. And oddly enough, they all began with the letter C. Compassion, courage, clarity, creativity, connectedness are all characteristics of what we call the self. And now, 40-some years later, and thousands of clients later, and thousands of therapists like yourself using this all over the world, we can safely say that that self, with a capital S, is in everybody, is a kind of essence that can't be destroyed, and knows how to heal, and knows how to relate to your parts in a healing way, and knows how to relate to the people around you in a healing way. That's a big deal. That changes everything. That was the big discovery, ultimately. And like I said, it was a big challenge to believe at first because I'd been taught, like probably you, that to have any of that, you had to have a certain kind of parenting when you were a kid, that it had to come from some external relationship. So, But it turns out it doesn't. It turns out it's inherent in us. It's become a more spiritual idea that way. You're absolutely right. And the concept of the self, it really is a game changer. and it shifts the agency we have, no matter what we've done or what's been done to us, there's still the agency and the capacity to heal. What that looks like and the process of that is its own unique journey for each individual. But I find even in my own work, whether I'm sitting in my clinical work or with my leadership clients or just as a citizen in the world right now, this practice of even what's going on with within myself or others, it really keeps me from dehumanizing. Mm -hmm. It helps me have compassion for those that are doing such harm mm -hmm. or have had such harm mm -hmm. done to them. And I've just, and then I'm able to stay more aligned with who I want to be and my values and my mm -hmm. integrity. And, and the domino effect of that is, is powerful that it just, there's such dignity in that even even with fo folks that are doing a lot of harm um, and have done a lot of harm and in a culture that is so justice oriented right. and all, and all about efficiency too, mm -hmm. this work is so countercultural, And so I am so grateful. Thank you for unpacking that. And I want to follow up. You said a little bit earlier, I guess, we both are trained family systems therapists. I was mm -hmm. structural family therapy like you mm -hmm. was kind of my foundational, mm -hmm. which um, has been a beautiful bridge to understanding mm -hmm. this framework for me. But you, know, you talk about 
the traditional approach to change and healing. You know, we talk about let's dig deep, find the pain, eliminate it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I see that both clinical and in leadership work, let's just, let's just exile this stuff. Mm-hmm. Or on the other side, you see this, just stay positive, let go, right. kill the resistance, right. you know, I see, especially in the leadership, mm-hmm. personal development world. Why do you believe that approach is harmful and problematic? This whole uh, positive psychology, uh, don't look at the past, just think about the future and think about all your qualities and resources has its place, you know, it can be valuable to a certain degree, but if you're, you know, you're working with somebody who has a lot of trauma, they do have a lot of parts that then you wind up having to exile, in my language, because they don't fit into that positive mindset. And in fact, some of them don't want you to feel good about yourself for reasons we can get into. But so in a sense, you wind up doing more violence to people because they come to you already having exiled a bunch of parts. And then you're, you're teaching them that, yeah, those and even these others are getting you down and, and shouldn't be around. And unfortunately, there are a lot of spiritualities that also subscribe to that kind of belief system. And with the other one where you're digging deep, you can dig deep too fast. You know, as since we're both systems thinkers, we both know that these internal worlds are delicate ecologies. Two things about that. One is when you succeed and you get to a lot of this pain that's in there or the terror or the shame, a lot of people will backlash, what we call backlash, because you didn't go there with permission. You didn't work with the parts that don't want you to go there, what most systems call resistance that you're just supposed to plow through and overcome. And those parts, it turns out, have been working hard to keep you away from all that for most of your life. And they really resent not being consulted about going there because they have a lot of fears about letting you go to those places. And so I learned that the hard way early on when I I would have clients have those backlash reactions after sessions where we did succeed in going and digging deep. To my credit, I guess, I got curious. uh, What am I doing wrong? And I had my clients teach me that, indeed, these are delicate ecologies, and I'm barging in, throwing open the door to their closets and pulling out all the dirty laundry without permission. And so now we don't do that. We always start with the protective parts of the system and honor them for their attempts to keep you safe and then ask about what they protect and then start negotiating permission to go to it. And it turns out that when you come in in that respectful way, you don't get so much resistance. You get permission, and then they don't have the backlash. That's powerful. and. This permission approach, this lens of, is it okay? Can we, you know, is it okay to have this conversation to even go to that deep work? This trauma work in itself isn't an efficient process. And I think that's a mindset that's important to change even in the leadership space. But this place of permission, it really is countercultural. It really shifts to more of a collaborative versus a power over 
approach that we're seeing not only in our internal system, but externally in our mm-hmm. culture. But people aren't very patient with this permission. It's it's really, it, it takes a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to, many people do have a part that's, that's determined to get in there and fix this right away. That part will always make things go slower, most slower, ironically, because it creates resistance from the parts that don't want to go there. They dig their heels in. When I'm working with somebody, that's the part I'm going to get to step back first, or any of the others, the one that's really determined and uh, driven to get the healing to happen today. What I, I get a lot of, not maybe full-on backlash, but I get a lot of pushback when in one of the aspects of internal family systems we're doing this work is to help people befriend the different parts of them yeah. and whether it's a, a protective part or an exiled part and man, it, <laughs> when I bring that up initially, it's like, I just shook a snow globe <laughs> with folks like, what are you talking about? Befriend this inner critic, mm-hmm. befriend the part of me that tells me I suck and I'm not worthy. Mm-hmm. Um, or who do I think I am? And obviously we, we rumble with that and, and unpack it. But once people start to hook into that concept, this power of you're here for a reason, I just want like that, the curiosity component of self, like, help me understand what your job is. Mm-hmm. Help me understand what your fears or concerns if you don't do your job. And again, I find that in the leadership space, especially that people love this. They're like, holy cow. Yeah. It appeals to the other parts of their efficient, like this might be more efficient mm-hmm. actually. <laughs> and they relax a little bit. Um, it actually does turn I, out to be a lot more efficient. It really does. It really does. It's just the system has a heart takes a while to under has to get on board. Right. right, <laughs> with, right. And and especially when, at least here in America, it's such a justice oriented culture. Yeah. These permission and befriending and compassion, these words are often, you know, to identified being weak mm-hmm. or soft mm-hmm. or you're gonna get yourself too exposed. Mm-hmm. Um and so it, it takes some trust building yeah. for sure. Yeah, especially in the business world where Never let them see you sweat is their motto. You know, my experience in the business world is that a lot of business leaders, while they they have a kind of love-hate relationship with the critic, they hate that it makes them feel so bad, but they love how it motivates them. And so some of, some of them are very reluctant to get it to stop because they're afraid they won't drive as hard and, and won't, you know, keep striving in their lives. and. What's interesting these days with the virus pause is that people's those parts of people can't do what they ordinarily do. So a lot of people are forced to notice what else is inside of them. And that can be very disturbing if if that driving critical voice was keeping you above your exiles, keeping you away from the sense of being worthless and how hard you worked was the way you felt good about yourself. So you, you can wind up awash in parts because you don't have the usual distractions. Or you can find parts of you that you actually had neglected who want a simpler life and don't want to spend all your life at work, that you actually find yourself enjoying things that uh, you hardly ever would, would do in the past, like reading a novel. or Yeah, it's... Could be it could go either way. 
I think you hit on something a lot, of, even in myself, these internal polarizations around as someone who can definitely protect with doing and work and mm -hmm. keep things at bay. But then you feel this soul leading to the simpler Mm -hmm. And that can be really disorienting to the internal homeostasis, mm -hmm. the status quo. So it's an opportunity for a lot of curiosity, for sure. Yeah, keep going. I mean, can you keep going actually on this pause? Because we're, we're recording this in the middle of a global pandemic, <laughs> which is unprecedented in our lifetime. Can you talk a little bit more about this pause? Because what I saw, particularly with, um, especially my, I'm connected a lot with people who have online businesses and entrepreneurs who are so innovative, so creative, and they jumped in right away, mm -hmm. right? They're like, some people were like, let's pivot, let's change. Mm -hmm. And everyone you know, got their 10 steps to do well at home, shelter in, in your business. And mm -hmm. there were some beautiful resources out there, but there was also this energy that felt a bit frenetic too. Mm -hmm. So yeah, talk a little bit more about what you're seeing in this pause. Yeah, I mean, like I say, it can go either way. I've got big CEO-type clients who, because they can't do the usual distractions, are really suffering. And it isn't just because they're scared of what's going to happen. It's because, as I said, they've got parts that, that were so reliant on the accolades and the, you know, the, the ability to be around a lot of people who are all working together for the same goal and and to work uh, 60 hours a week, that without that, they're kind of lost and, and up come these exile parts that need their attention, but they're so afraid of. So it's, in, the, in that sense, it's a, a blessing for me as a therapist because while they were succeeding, quote unquote, we had trouble getting past those driven parts. And now everything's cracked open. And so there's a lot of uh, trailheads, we call it, that uh, we can follow to find the pot of gold, to find the parts that need their healing. And that's also true with some people who the crisis itself is triggering a lot of parts that they didn't have to experience when they weren't in a crisis like this. So I have clients, for example, who suddenly are feeling terrified and trapped, and that takes them back to when they were being abused and were powerless, and, uh, and we were able to go and get those little girls out of there. And For a therapist, it's a good time <laughs> because people are accessing a lot more. And then ideally, and there are people who don't have big trauma histories who can do this naturally. Ideally, as I was saying in the second, second thing I was saying is you can help those driven parts see they don't have to do that as much. And you can give access to people's playful sides or their those intimate the parts that want to be intimate more, get to know their family better, or the parts that... Uh, want to do things for their body rather than destroy their body the way they had been. So it can be a, a time when there's an opportunity for more integration of all these parts that have been cut out by the dominant one. Yeah, this, this is a this is one giant trailhead mm -hmm. <laughs> right now that yeah. we're leading to many more. 
Keeping up on the latest tools and practices is something that I know is innate to you. Your curiosity and work ethics set you apart and you're often ahead of the curve on new and innovative practices and techniques that support your leadership and the work you do. So when what has worked for you to navigate struggle, growth edges, recurring struggles has stopped working, it may be time to dig back into your curiosity and learn more how the burdens you're carrying may be what is holding you back. It all starts with the conversation. Set up a connection call with me to learn more about unburdened leadership coaching experiences at www.rebeccaching.com or send me an Insta DM at Rebecca Ching MFT and tell me you want to learn more about self-leadership. Remember, leaders are not meant to go it alone and the tools that got you where you are today may need to be upgraded so you can go the distance with less burnout and burdens. Share this episode with someone you think may really benefit from it and sign up for my weekly Rumble email where you'll have the resources at your fingertips to help you on your path to being an unburdened leader. I want to shift a little bit and I want to hear more how how IFS has impacted your own personal life and your work as and let alone as a work as a healer and a leader at the IFS Institute. But I'd love for you to start with how IFS has impacted you personally. I <laughs> I feel very blessed to have stumbled into this because it's it's given me a kind of uh, purpose in my life since I was that age. And I think I might have been 32 when I first started to get this. And I just turned 70 this year. So that's a lot of years to have a, a, a really um, meaning, meaningful vision and to devote my life to it. And there were many, many lonely years where everybody was very skeptical. This is a, as you're saying, it's a countercultural kind of understanding of people that was a very tough sell in the early years. And I just had a few people who were uh, into it and supporting me. And now, as you know, it's kind of taking off. And, uh, and I think part of the reason, and this goes to your question too, is it took this long, and it's been taking off for maybe the last five years or so, it's taken this long in part because I wasn't ready. I still had parts that I needed to work with to be a good leader when the time came. And so I have done a lot of work in the last 10, 15 years, I'd say particularly since uh, my second marriage, because uh, my current wife, Jean, has been a great what we call tormentor with a hyphen between the tor and the mentor. <laughs> so she, by tormenting me, she mentors me, along the lines of what I was saying a minute ago, in terms of what parts I need to heal. Because every time I take the bait and I get really angry or hurt or something, rather than trying to change her, I focus on myself and find the part and, and see where it's stuck and actually... Uh, I can't always do that by myself, but uh, ultimately can unburden these parts so they don't react in the same way. And, you know, as as I was stewing about why has it taken so long, I sort of got this inclination, this intuition that 
It's because I wasn't ready. And now I'm much more ready. And go ahead. No, I'm just thinking you weren't ready. Yeah. Can, can you unpack that a little bit more? You know, I think I was doing it for the wrong reasons. Not totally, but there were parts of me that needed the accolades, needed the sense that I was uh, valuable, along the lines of what I was saying earlier about clients this time. You know, that, that uh, if I had a period like this, for example, where I couldn't get out and do a workshop and have everybody tell me how great IFS was and how great I was, then these worthless parts would start to creep up. And, uh, and you know, I, I had a father who was hard on me. And so I came out of my family. And, you know, he had some good reasons to be hard on me, but I came out of my family with considerable sense of worthlessness. I'm actually looking at his picture right now. <laughs> wow. And, and, uh, and so that the parts that were trying to counter that uh, actually were necessary to get me, I'm a basically a shy person, so to get me out in front of people saying these controversial things, I had to have parts that didn't give a shit about what anybody thought and were sort of narcissistic that way and, and uh, were just determined to prove my value. And... So none of this would have happened had all that not been the case. But then, as I started to be the leader of a community, those parts started to get in the way, and, and some other parts. And uh, I was lucky to have people in the community who confronted me. As you know, there are some trainers who in the early days wouldn't put up with that. And, you know, what I'm proud of is that I listened to them rather than getting rid of them and actually over time did more and more work around these issues. So uh, you've got me going on a long uh, disclosive story here. I, I appreciate it. And I, I, you, you touch on this, the piece about not getting ready and that connecting that to this drive you had of proving your worth. I'm hard pressed to find a leader, let alone anyone that doesn't have the elements of, yeah. of those protectors in them yeah. and that they're, and they're helpful, right? Because we're not swimming in the shame of not enough, but it's not sustainable. Um, especially when you're leading a big community. And, and so I think that that is, that is a really important reflection uh, that many people will be able to relate to shifting gears to how, has your passion and commitment then to getting the IFS message out to the world led to you experiencing some burdens and maybe even them taking you out? Like you said, this was lonely at the beginning and people were skeptical. And, you know, as I mentioned, this is countercultural. How did you navigate? Now, this is a 40 year commitment. This is long game work yeah. and it's just taking off. But how did you navigate those times when the burdens of this work not connecting took you out? When I first uh, stumbled into this, I was sort of like a rising star in the family therapy world. I had co-authored a textbook, or I was about to, I was in the middle of, maybe you had it in graduate school. 
Uh, it was my first uh, MFT course was your book. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I thought I was a hotshot. And I, uh, again, was very, had these parts that were very eager to have everybody think I was great. And then I came into this, and, you know, very early on, when I started to see that self was in everybody and that these parts weren't what they thought, um, I got a big vision for this. I got the sense that this could change everything if everybody got this. And, but I was, <laughs> I was a little kid, and I was, you know, I think I was 33, maybe, when I really started to get it, or 34. But I was a really young 34. I was immature, people would say, in a lot of ways. And so I thought, you know, this is amazing. I sure hope the person who can take it where it's supposed to go comes along, because I'm just a little kid. But that person never showed up. So I, I felt like, you know, myself maybe, or parts of me felt like, this is so important that I have to get it out, even if it, you know, even if it hurts so many parts of me. Uh, and it did, you know, that I had experiences. I was in a department of psychiatry, University of Illinois at Chicago, and I was asked to do grand rounds about it. So the, the sea of white lab coats. And, uh, again, as a, like a 33-year-old kid. And the analysts in the room just butchered me, just got up and and uh, tore into me. And one guy tried to get me fired and said it was dangerous. Uh, this was in Chicago where what's called self-psychology was a big model and cohort. And the idea that they have this big fear of fragmenting in that world, and so they would say I was fragmenting people by having them focus on these parts. And I would say, no, they come in pretty fragmented. I'm having them focus so they can go and get them and bring them back home, so they're less fragmented. But they were so scared of the whole phenomena that just by focusing on them, they thought. So anyway, I can't remember how I got into that, but um, and I would be parts of me would be really, really, really hurt and want to go crawl in a hole and hide. And, and I wasn't getting a lot of support from my family therapy colleagues that I worked with because family therapy had assiduously avoided thinking about the intrapsychic world. Family therapy was kind of born as a reaction against what they saw as the excesses of psychoanalysis. So I was a traitor to the cause there too. So... I, I was like uh, a man with no home, or what's the word on phrase? Uh, anyway, yeah, I just felt alone, and, and luckily I had some students who got excited about it and kept me going. So it wasn't just me. I had uh, my wife and at the time and uh, a number of students where I could we could compare notes on our discoveries and uh, some of the early ones, Mitchie mm -hmm. Rose is one who's still around. Um, and so there was this little kind of uh, enclave where we were all excited and all supporting each other. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, and that, that was really helpful. I had to have that. I think you bring to the surface the absolute essential need to have community um, mm-hmm. to reflect back to us, whether it's personal on our own worthiness and value or the professional, especially when we're innovating and, and shifting mm-hmm. culture because man, homeostasis, we know this in our training, it fights to the death mm-hmm. <laughs> to yeah. keep status quo. And it is a beast to, to, to hold space for. I am so glad. I'm so glad you had that community at the time and you persevered. Um, it's just, it, it's thinking about 40 years though. It's this, Making making significant change is long game. Work. Yeah, yeah. There was a point where I kind of got that, and systems thinking really helps. Because totally, you do get that there is an established paradigm that you're hitting up against, and that every time a systems thinker does that, they expect the homeostatic reactions you're alluding to. And so there was a there was a point where I. I didn't take it nearly as personally. And that shift of where it's this work and everyone's acceptance of it isn't connected to your worthiness to mm-hmm. this work is deeply personal and deeply important, but your worthiness isn't on the table for others yeah. to have a say. That's a big shift. And it's an essential shift to sustain trying to pivot culture, especially, but making change in general. And there was also a point where I had uh, begun trading sessions with a woman who who told, had come up to me at workshop and said, I'm getting these messages for you from somewhere. And <laughs> uh, they're, they're interesting if you want to know. And so, you know, I, I have people come up and say crazy things to me all the time. But I, in her case, she seemed quite, you know, non-manipulative, sincere. And so I did start trading sessions with her and uh, the messages she were, was giving was getting really helped me too because she was getting messages about how I was sort of given this to bring it isn't about me and how much I needed to get my personality out of the way uh, so that I could bring it in a clean way and uh, so that not only helped me not take things personally, but also helped me with the commitment to keep working on myself. Yeah. I mean, that's a differentiation at its finest right there. It's a tough one. It is a tough one in a world that loves to reward the doing and not just who we are and our essence. Um, we have to rely internally. And I, I love how self-leadership and the capacity, what I often talk to people about is the U-turn, the Y-O-U turn mm-hmm. um, to bring that back. and this makes me shift to my next question and what you were just saying, because what do you see as the biggest benefits for IFS in this, the leaders and leadership space and business and entrepreneurs spaces? Because often the message is, is you do you and no one else is you. And that is so true. Yet there's this double as message, do you, and then we'll decide if we're going to choose you. <laughs> so talk about what you see are some of the benefits for IFS in more of the business leadership space from your perspective? Yeah, it's a big topic. Um, So of course there's self and uh, self-led leaders 
self-led organizations will have a certain culture that uh, that resembles the inner worlds of the people in leadership. So what I'm calling self is contagious. So if I can be in self in my community, it's going to pull self from everybody else. Uh, whereas if I'm in parts as a leader, then that's also contagious. Then everybody's protectors start to come forward. And if I am not afraid of my own vulnerability, because I know my exiles and, and, and I can be with them without being overwhelmed and without being afraid, then when people are vulnerable around me, I'll be very accepting of them and uh, be able to be present with them. But if I'm afraid of my exiles, then when somebody's, and I'm dominated by these protectors that, that never want to see me sweat, let me be seen as sweating, then when other people are vulnerable, I'm going to try and, and get them to cut it out. So the message there is that the way you relate to your parts will be parallel to the way you relate to people when they resemble your parts. The way that you relate to your parts is the way that you relate to the people, to people when they remind you of your parts. I just yeah. had to repeat that there. And so what you said here is, you know, and it reminds me of what Brene often, Brene Brown says, how courage is contagious and courage is one of the C's of self, mm -hmm. no mm -hmm. surprise. And so are parts, right? So mm -hmm. is anxiety, so is judgment, so is shame. Those things are contagious and we know all the neuroscience studies about that too. I love what you just said. It's like, I'm not, if I'm not afraid of my vulnerability and I'm aware of my exiles, this is really, I think what sets leaders apart and being able to handle change and rejection and falls and failures without losing themselves yeah. or, and, and taking others down in the process. Yeah. Or, you know, back when I had all these exiles that were assuming I was worthless, and somebody was critical of me, that would just explode with the shame inside of me. And to avoid that, there would have to be a part, you see this in our current president, who would immediately have to argue and correct the person and restore my sense of self-esteem that I'm not a bad person, even with the slightest kind of criticism. And once you once you can be with that exile, then you don't fear the way people might trigger you otherwise. You don't you're not so brittle. And you could actually unburden that shame so that you're not even so vulnerable to that. So yeah, for me the I'm just fascinated by the parallel between inner systems and outer systems. I'm with you. It is fascinating. And they're inextricably connected. Mm -hmm. It's almost these ecosystems within systems, within systems. Yeah, in family yeah, therapy, it's... we had a concept of isomorphic, structural, Mnuchin, to talk about isomorphic system. And that, that's what it is. It's just the same, the same system inside and outside. And that involves perspective taking. That involves mm -hmm. being able to step back and see our inner system mm -hmm. versus being led by parts of our inner system. And that's, that requires work yeah. and, and 
pers- personal and professional development work. It, it's powerful. I love this. And this is where I'm going to geek out. I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, Mnuchin. Oh, Mnuchin. Um, so I, I want to just wrap up because you touched on what's going on politically right now. And I've been writing and talking a lot about like cultural gaslighting, you know, this, mm-hmm. this sense. And I'm hearing so many of my clients, even just even the last few days, getting texts and messages from my leadership clients going, this is really hard to hold space for, mm-hmm. like to keep speaking truth and literally having people in power say, no, the sky isn't blue, it's purple. Mm-hmm. And I'm feeling my system start to overwhelm and shut down. Can you talk about ways we can lead ourselves while in an age of such intense, even external polarizations without burning out or feeling overwhelmed by the anger or just wanting to tap out altogether um, these days? Yeah. Can you comment a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, you know, I have all those reactions. I, as this goes on and you watch the news and you watch his press conferences and, and yeah, there are parts of me that have that reaction. But then there are these little... I'm, I'm rolling my eyes right yeah. now. Dick just saw me roll my eyes. <laughs> but there are these young parts that think, oh, maybe he's right, you know? And you can sort of yes. see how he can induce people into that place. Because even, exactly. even me, who has done a lot of work on myself and... <laughs> I know, I know. I'm like, maybe the sky is purple. Yeah. And then... My husband looks at me. He's like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, oh, I'm in the trance. Yeah. <laughs> but then that causes my inner system then to kind of get anxious. And I start to feel a little flooded. Like, wait, what, what day is it? Who am I? Exactly. What, you know, it's, just, it's disorienting. Yeah. But so I know now to go to those young parts and mm. say, I get you. You wish that there was this strong guy who could take care of everything and knew all the answers. But. I'm here. You don't need him. And I know uh, that I can actually help you. So it's, you know, it's it's walking the talk of becoming the primary caretaker of your own exiles, which then frees up everybody around you to become the secondary caretaker. And then that allows you to stay in self. And when I listen to him himself, it's a totally different experience. I just see through all the bullshit and can actually see his exiles. <laughs> you can kind of see beyond the his protectors totally. and see what an insecure, hurting guy he is that he needs to do this all the time and have compassion for him. And, and again, you know, I, I've trained a lot of social activists, uh, have compassion while you're acting to stop things, to stop the injustice. And and doing it from self, you don't polarize, you know. Whereas if you do it from these righteous, angry parts, then you do polarize. That's a powerful differentiation. And I really appreciate you touching on, on that, that place, because I know when I can have compassion for what I'm seeing in our leadership right now, it is a radically selfish act for my own well-being because mm-hmm. I'm not getting hooked. And yet it's not remiss of accountability mm-hmm. and that we can still move forward. It's compassion isn't rolling over saying, oh, it's just someone wounded in their childhood. Right. It's there's still a sense of accountability. Um, yeah. but this compassion Yeah. One of the the three C words that 
uh, self has that people forget are courage and clarity and confidence. And so self can be very forceful in standing up to injustice. And also, there's a drive, or not a drive is the wrong word, but a, a desire in self to bring healing and to bring justice to, uh, and a lot of times healing involves bringing justice. So, so the more self-led you become, the more, the less afraid you are to act in a way that's going to actually bring more harmony. And to bring more harmony, often you do have to stand up to the protectors in the external world. That's awesome. And if we had more leaders like that, whether in our home, in our communities, our elected officials, our businesses. <laughs> you know, and that's that way. that's the big vision is to create more leaders like that through this work. And uh, so I'm, I'm really glad to hear how much you're doing with leaders because uh, I think you can do a lot of that. Thank you. It has been transformative personally. I wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't wasn't for this work. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, I, it's hard to put to words the feeling. I know you hear these stories all the time when you have the burdens lifted mm-hmm. and experience what joy is and you get to see then other people experience that too. Um, and we've still got a lot of work to do. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of work we got to do, Dick. There's still a lot of work to be done. Yeah. Um, and, and I know we're here for it. <laughs> we're not going anywhere. I am. Yeah. So can, can you talk briefly about what you're working on right now? Uh, I am working on several things. Uh, one is a book on uh, the spirituality of IFS that uh, is originally I did a, a what do they call it a uh, audio book for Sounds True called Greater Than the Sum of the Parts and. So now they've translated that and want me to do a regular book for them. And that's been really fun because I've been putting in a lot of the stuff we've been talking about into that. Uh, So we're hoping to start to scale IFS from being just a kind of one model of psychotherapy to bringing it to... uh, Feels like education and and consulting and coaching and uh, medicine. There's projects in medicine and, and spirituality. I'm collaborating with some Tibetan lamas to try and help them stop doing the spiritual bypass stuff. Oh, and, that's a whole other conversation. Mm-hmm. I'll have you back for. Yeah. <laughs> That's right, because you spoke in front of the Dalai Lama. I don't know how long ago was that, four or five years ago? I think it was a little less than that, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And where can people find you and connect with the work that you're doing? Well, the, they can find the work at our website, which is uh, ifs-institute.com. And uh, I do some of these kind of things, and I also... Uh, do workshops, and I'm doing a workshop Saturday for the first time online. Uh, so, every, you know, everything's been moved to online. And so if people go to the website and get on our mailing list, 
then there are notice, notifications that go out all the time about things that I'm doing. And uh, that's the best way to find me. Wonderful. And I recommend your book's intro to Internal Family Systems, and you are the one you've been waiting for to anyone that I know. I think I have order, order copies and give them away. I totally appreciate <laughs> I it. Send people yeah. And as my, I'm married to an educator, and it's been fun to see him bring some of these principles into his work. That's yeah, great to hear. Um, mm-hmm. Right after my um, first level one training, and I came back and I said, oh, so a part of you is really upset right now. And my husband's like, what do you mean a part of me? This is all of me. Right. And I'm like, Oh, you're blended. He's like, what? I'm like, okay, I need to stop talking. I did it all wrong. I did it all wrong. <laughs> well, you can uh, but also, apologize to your husband for me. Flicking that on him. <laughs> I think between you and Brene Brown, there's been a lot of apologizing. <laughs> it's like, if you're going to talk about IFS or shame resilience theory, I need to tap out right, right. now. <laughs> um also, too, there's a six-month program that you guys offer. Where people can anyone yeah. can join and learn about the model, right? I think you ju- did. You just close that the, the most recent think, one yeah. at the time of this uh-huh. recording. Yeah. Okay. It's, but if you're on the mailing list, you mm-hmm. can hear about the next yeah, one. Yeah, it's okay. called the the IFS Circle program. So yeah, people seem to love that. I benefited a lot from that. So yeah. it's a wonderful program. Thank you again for your time, for your wisdom, uh, for doing your own work and unburdening so that um, your system could be ready to scale this uh, to the globe. I'm very grateful for your example and for your leadership in my life and, and in so many uh, spaces that I'm in. So thank you for your time today. Thank you, Rebecca. I always enjoy talking to you and you, you're a really good interviewer. You pulled a lot of stuff out of me that I don't usually talk about. So. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for your trust. I appreciate it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There are no overnight successes, and our drive can work against us if we let it lead us based on our wounds and fears. Instead, we want to lead our drive in a way that is aligned with our values and from a place of what IFS calls self-leadership. This conversation was a deep dive into the importance of leading your inner system and the important connection and parallels between your inner system and what is happening externally. Dick Schwartz left us with a powerful reminder on the importance of doing the work to be ready to hold the capacity to tolerate success and lead ourselves and others with integrity, no matter what is happening around us. Dick's work and his own unburdening practices saved his own life and helped him get out of his own way so he could lead from a place of generosity, compassion, and clarity instead of being led by the childhood shame that fueled his initial drive for success, notoriety, and being right. Dick's explanation of the IFS, or Internal Family Systems Model, unpacked for us how this perspective shifts so much of what we've been taught about drive, resistance, and struggle. So much, gosh. Our discussion around leading and gaslight culture, which can be disorienting and feel feelings of helplessness and hopelessness in the best of us, gave us practical insights to how your leadership can run the marathon when you're not hijacked by those who trigger you. Instead, you're driven by a deep curiosity rather than fear and shame. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. Make sure to check out the IFS Institute at www.ifs-institute.com, which is the home base for the IFS community, resources, and more. 
You can find this episode, show notes, and free unburdened leader resources, along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com 